Sales Tuners, Episode 32, Mary Lou Tyler, CEO at Strategic Pipeline. I was just flabbergasted by how people were spamming through email only, me being a phone person. So I wanted to make sure people understood the blend of the email with the phone and how that looks in a cadence and sequence. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Mark Twain, who said, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. My guest today is Mary Lou Tyler, CEO at Strategic Pipeline, as well as an accomplished author. Mary Lou Tyler started out her career as a systems engineer at a Los Angeles think tank, but her ability to talk with clients and interpret the requests they had for development caused her to shift focus. As she transitioned into supporting sales teams and, well, banging her head against the wall, she started applying her background in process development to the sales cycle and started seeing predictable outcomes. Her success in lead generation, predictive dialing, and outbound prospecting led to her co-authoring the book Predictable Revenue with Aaron Ross, as well as her new book, Predictable Prospecting. Before we dive in today, I've got Bob Perkins back with me, and I want to remind you about the upcoming AAISP Leadership Summit that I'll be at in Chicago next Tuesday through Thursday. Bob, we're just a week away from the ninth Annual Leadership Summit. For my listeners who haven't yet pulled the trigger, what do they need to know? You need to be there to learn from the best, to hear about trends, to hear about the research, and just to share best practices with other thought leaders on Inside Sales. Well, you've already got me fired up. And today's guest, Mary Lou Tyler, was actually a keynote at last year's event. But what can people expect from the summit? Well, here's what it is. If you have anything to do with Inside Sales, you really don't know what you're missing unless you get out to the summit. It is the one time, the biggest event in the world, which brings people that are passionate, are concerned about advancing the profession of inside sales, advancing their own leadership development, and advancing their team's professionalism around this great topic of inside sales, virtual sales, digital sales. I love it. I can't wait. Where can people go to register or get more information? Go out to the AISP website and uh, look it over for yourself. And I'm sure you're going to see some presentations, some tracks, some sessions that are going to pertain to you and your top challenges that you face as a leader. Bob, it's going down next week in Chicago. I'll see you in just a few days, my friend. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you as well. Thanks for having me. All right, Sales Sooners. Like I said, we're just a week away. If you're going to be there, hit me up so we can connect. Or if you still need to register, head to aa-isp.org. And remember, Every event registration includes an annual membership to AAISP where you can network with others as well as download more resources and research than you'll be able to get through, I promise, in an entire year. I hope to have a beer with several of you at the Microsoft Yacht Party. But now back to today's show. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. 
You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 32. But now let's get to the conversation where Mary Lou talks about the transition in her career from being a programmer to getting into sales. Well, you know, it's for those people, we have three different variations of the service we offer because I'm learning by being out there and helping clients that there are different levels of skills that you guys possess. And some of you are really all about the ability to do it yourself, give me the blueprint, I'm going to go out there and do it myself. So we have levels of service there, but there's also people who want handholding for a little bit of it, like a concierge type service. So I could start you from scratch to get you to a predictable revenue engine, or we can touch base along the way with you driving the ship, so to speak, and you actually going through the steps. The beauty is it's a pre-described, pre-outlined 28-step process that you go to to get from that cold conversation or pre-sales conversation all the way through to a qualified op. And that's what Strategic Pipeline does. A 28, you said a short, quick 28-step process, but uh, I, I, I can hear the engineer coming out in you. You're, you're breaking down everything. So uh, Mary Lou, as you know, in this show, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and success. That have, or, I'm sorry, the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success. And you, know, you, you haven't always been the person you are today. So let's go way back. How did you even get into sales? I was always working in technology because I'm a programmer. So I worked at a think tank in Los Angeles at a, at, for Honeywell, actually, working on their mainframes. I did transaction processing code. And I was always the person selected to be client-facing to translate what they wanted into the program tech, you know, descriptives and things that the programmers need in order to generate. So I did a lot of design specification writing. And it became very clear that I was a good liaison. So I had one foot in client facing and one foot in technical and begrudgingly are the, you know, like the reluctant hero of going from one to the other. I was just constantly getting pushed into that side of the business. So I finally raised my hands one day and said, okay, I'm done. I, I get it. I know that I can speak. I know that I have enough of a personality that I can be client facing, but yet I have the technical know-how to be able to immediately see when it's a problem in, in terms of generating the actual result to get it to the developers. So that's how I started. And then I went into sales support from there. And then it went crazy after that. What were some of those early challenges? Why, why did it go crazy? What were you working on? Everything we did at the time was disruptive. Why? Because we were going from analog to digital. That's when I got involved. So think about it. You guys are all kind of raised in the digital era. We were still on analog. We still had 25-pair cable running to a telephone that held up the buildings in Los Angeles pretty much and the risers. And there was asbestos in the buildings. So <laughs> I was dealing with, you know, trying to take 25-pair cable, get it to one twisted pair that we ran RS-232 signal, which is a character-based protocol. We ran Ethernet, which is only one meg, and then we ran the telephony lines. So... I was the person who ran around, not only did the punch downs and did the actual schematics for the phone systems, but then actually taught clients on how to use a digital phone because we didn't know how to do that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So one day I went into the office and my boss kind of waved this magic wand over my head and said, hey, we just filed, fired all the sales reps because they can't sell this technology and all the systems engineers have been promoted to sales. So that was my entree into being a sales rep. 
uh, welcome aboard. Here you go. Here's your bag. Uh, start going and selling. So yeah, talk to me about those early days. What what were you doing? How were you opening up new relationships or new opportunities with prospects? Well, obviously, I failed miserably because I didn't know anything about prospecting. I didn't know anything about even starting an initial conversation. I was always brought in as a systems engineer when we were either real close to close or we were at close. So there was this whole section of the pipeline where I had no idea how it worked. I had no idea how to how to do it. So I I just said, you know what? What do I know? I know process. So I tried to apply to every stage in the pipeline, interstage advancement metrics and intrastage advancement metrics that I could use and measure and critique and improve all the way through. So I just started getting enamored with top of funnel because I didn't know how to start a conversation with anybody. And so I studied that for the last now 28 years or so, just studying that piece of it. Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, what was that like? You, you were the subject matter expert, but you weren't mm-hmm. a salesperson. No. So, I mean. No. So, what do we do? You know, we're students. I'm an eternal student. All of us on the phone are love to learn. So, I just grabbed every single book I could. I ran around with salespeople who were vendors of ours who did that thing. And I interviewed them. I talked to them. I tried to get an understanding of how they did it. I, you know, basically listened and then translated and then practiced with them. I role played with them. And eventually I ended up with a rhythm that I could consistently do that generated me the, you know, the number of, of appointments that I needed in order to be able to succeed. So it came down to math. It came down to if I saw 100 people, that 10 would probably go to a demo. And then of those 10, eight, you know, eight would probably be qualified ops, which was the beginning of the predictable revenue waterfall. Yeah. So you were using this as a, it truly a math game, right? It was just a numbers me, in, numbers out. For me, it was that, but it was also taking my knowledge of segmentation, taking my knowledge of understanding to get that niche, uh, knowing that that was important and understanding that there are characteristics that we can use in order to be able to talk to the right people at the right time in the right role at the right spot in the pipeline. So, yeah. To that level. And, and a lot of people talk about that, the right person at the right time, at the right stage, you know, but how do you, how do you know that? I mean, you, you're reaching out to them cold. How do you, how do you break that down, Mary Lou? Well, what we used to do is research, you know, but we didn't have the internet. <laughs> yeah. So I was in the library a lot looking at the old journals and things. They used to have, you know, things you couldn't check out, but you could sit there and read. And so I started seeing Again, using my engineering background, I started seeing patterns. I started seeing things that occurred more than once. And I realized as a programmer that if I do something more than once, it's probably something that I could program. So I just attacked it from that point of view. And I did chunk it down to stages. And then within stages, there were activities. And then within activities, there were meetings with people. And I started to really understand the type of person I needed it at this particular point in the pipeline in order to be able to advance either forward or out. The other thing that I don't have that salespeople have is hopeful thinking. If I see that someone's not a good fit, I get rid I politely excuse myself from the conversation early on. I do not take them further in with the hope that I can convert them. If they're not meeting my criteria, that's very stringent, then they're out. They're nurtured. They're someplace else. They're not in my active pipeline. So I was very disciplined about that. 
because I didn't have that sales background that said, everybody's a good prospect. I definitely niched it into only these people that meet these criteria at this point in time, at this place in the pipeline can go forward with me. Everybody else is a waste of my time. So I, that makes complete sense to me, but I can hear people, you know, some of my listeners saying, of course, that makes complete sense when you have a full pipeline and you're not worried about hitting your number at the end of the quarter or the month. What would you say to someone who says that, Mary Lou? I would say that the reason why you're thinking this is because you haven't established the habit of prospecting. Mm. of doing the same things day in and day out so you don't have those peaks and valleys. That's the difference. You have to be able to incorporate prospecting as a habit. I was talking on the phone the other day with a colleague of mine who insists that discipline is the utmost importance, and I disagree. Discipline you will do for a certain period of time, but as things start getting great and everything's woo-woo, you're going to forget that you still need to do the discipline thing. That's why people lose weight, then gain weight, then lose weight, then gain weight. But really what you need to do is is turn that discipline into habit. It's like you're brushing your teeth every day. You prospect every day. It has to get to that level so that it's so ingrained in your DNA and so ingrained in your body that it would feel weird if you didn't prospect. That's the difference. Okay. I'm buying this, but I also read in your book how you break out those different roles. And so not everyone is the prospector. Some people are the the closer and some people are. So how does that fit into the equation? Well, you know, it's really interesting. And I didn't even think about this, but 48% of the students in my class that I just taught were all roles. So they prospected, they closed, and they serviced. So what we needed to come up with was a workflow the day in the life of this prospector. He had to put his prospecting hat on, but not every day, but maybe it was Tuesdays and Fridays. And that's what I do. Since I am all roles, I prospect, I close, and I service accounts. But on Tuesdays and Fridays, there's a block time that all I do is prospect. And that's another thing I find with almost all of my clients is that block time is not honored for single tasking activities. You have to set a goal of block time being one activity. For me, that's phone calls. For you, it could be email, whatever it is, however you do that first conversation or or start filling up your pipeline, you've got to do that one activity and one activity only. And on your door or on your window of your QB, you put a little sign that says, do not disturb because I'm in block time. It's that important. I think I've heard this concept of of block timing or, or time blocking, whichever way you want to put it, at least four or five times in the in the last couple of months from guests on this, and so uh, it, it's so so true. You know, I've done it for years myself, so I love having you you know repeat that uh, just because it, it it's serious, it's true. Um, so another part of your book, you talked about the three simple daily metrics that an SDR you know should have, and and I've got fifty emails a day five mini cold conversations and 10 daily reach outs to the network to see if you could be of service. That mm-hmm. that seems like a lot of work for, for daily metrics. That's a daily SDR role. And that's not difficult to do if you have the right technology. I have some clients who are just using Excel. They don't have really? any type. Yeah, still to this day. Till this day. <laughs> I still have people. So they can only do maybe 20 emails a day, but they can still do their first and 10. That's that thing we just you just mentioned about 10 outreach. Every day in the morning, I do first and 10 no matter what. First and 10 to me is in LinkedIn only, and it's reaching out to my second and third level 
and saying basically connecting with them if they've looked at my blog post, if they've looked at my profile, if I have someone in common with them who's a first level, I will reach out to them and ask them to connect or share a piece of content that they may not have seen before that may be of value to them based on what they looked at. I do that every day, first and 10. Now the emails, I don't do very many of those anymore with my business, but I, when I do my block time of emails, I do about 20 and that's it. And that's a couple times a week. So you have to really take the concepts from the book, which is a full-time SDR and then chunk it down and ratio it to what you can actively do. But, but you can only do that if you work on what is the end goal? What's the outcome you want? And that will help you figure out how much time you need to spend in each of those tasks, single tasking, in order to reach your goal. Or like with my clients and my students, I have them go for that stretch goal. There's so many places I want to go with our conversation, but I know I have you for a limited amount of time. Uh, first, I'm going to ask this. Did you coin this phrase or, or, or kind of trademark the first and 10? Because I really like that. I stole it. Yeah, Everything okay. we do, we steal. <laughs> I stole it from Michael, where, what is his last name? A real estate guy. Okay. Um, and he his whole book is about football. Yep. So first and 10, right? Makes sense. So I, I give him credit. Michael Mayer, that's his last name. Uh, I do give him attribution, but yes, I took it. Like everything we do in our world and outreach, we steal the best. It's well, recommended. <laughs> I was going to say, so you're not going to be offended when I steal that from you then? No, not at all. Because <laughs> I, I love it. It's great. Now, so, but one of the phrases that I do believe you coined is this concept of cold calling 2.0, right? That was that was kind of at the precipice of, uh, of predictable revenue. A lot has happened since that book come, has come out. I've seen a lot of, I'll call it LinkedIn shaming of reps who have taken that and completely bastardized what you were trying to get at. But can you just talk, Mary Lou, about well, I guess maybe how the world has changed since you wrote Predictable Revenue and introduced this phrase, cold calling 2.0. You know, it's really funny because um, I came from the call center background. So I'm a telephony nut. And I had a, a call center of 250 business developers, basically, who we generated appointments and, and did meetings and things like that. So I was coming up from the phone side. Predictable Revenue was coming from the email side only. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the translation, it got lost that we could spam people with yes. email. <laughs> and that was not the intent of predictable revenue. If you look at that book and you look at the formula on page 42, it is all about quality. It's all about the lag in the pipeline. It's about the cold calling 2.0 funnel. And it's about the average deal size. So the cold calling 2.0 funnel, though, was based on a three hour 15 process to go from cold conversation to opportunity. And somehow it was translated into a 15 minute, I need you, I want you, every email, I want, I want, I want. And that was not the way it was set up, nor was the spirit behind it that way. And it's funny, that book, if you reread it now with the concept of account-based selling in Mm -hmm. mind, it'll all of a sudden make a lot of sense again. (laughs) So three hours and 15 minutes is a long time for an SDR to hold on to a lead. It's doing a 15-minute Are We a Fit call, followed by an hour-long call with one stakeholder, followed by a two-hour call with multiple stakeholders. That was the role of the SDR when we wrote that book. You can't be sending spam out to hundreds of people and thousands of people. You are working a core set of accounts, 20 to 40, 
and you're sending them meaningful information and you're trying to gather up stakeholders, more than one, mm-hmm. so that you can have a two-hour conversation. That does not scream spam. I, I'm sitting here shaking my head. Yes, I think it's funny. Your book, uh, it, it almost created an industry. There are so many tools out there that have now <laughs> been built yeah. uh, off of your of your process. I hope you're getting some royalties for that. But but no, I remember one of the things that I took out of that was the phrase research rather than sell. Right. And that was why I was able to to kind of execute some of those cold calling 2.0 campaigns very successfully. But it also had calls involved, like the actual picking up the phone and calling behind some of that information. And, and I feel like too many people now, it's, just, it's all automation. You know, we've got a, a thousand of these leads to get through and they're not even leads. They're just names. And we just got to blast them out and, and, and get that. So as you move to uh, your new book, mm-hmm. what, what – <laughs> I guess, what was the precipice of the new book? Why did you write uh, the new one? Two reasons. One is I was just flabbergasted by how people were spamming through email only, me being a phone person. So I wanted to make sure people understood the blend of the email with the phone and how that looks in a cadence and sequence, you know, what the rhythm is, which is the cadence and the sequence, which is the number of touches. Um, I wanted people to really understand the body of the emails, what they should look like. So that's the second half of that book. The other reason why I wrote the book is I was shamed by one of my clients who said, Mary Lou, you've been doing this for 30 years now and you work on three to five clients a quarter. What about the rest of the universe that needs your help? <laughs> you know, so he said, I can remember distinctly, I was in New York for a immersion, three day immersion with one client. And he said, you're doing a disservice by not getting this on paper. What you're teaching me right now is not predictable revenue. It's something else. What is it? And I said, well, it's it's a 28-step process instead of a five-step process because working with clients, I found that everyone was getting stuck in the predictable revenue model at the sell the dream portion of the framework, which is what you and I have just been talking about the last you know 10 minutes is about how to add value, how to create compelling content so that people are leaning into the computer and saying, I want to talk to this person, they've so figured me out and what my issues are. So that's the reason why we wrote that book. So I, I'm going to take that one way, but I'm, I might do it a little bit of, a, of an odd way. So one of the things I pulled out of that one was you had a chapter or you know a page talking about finding the pain where you had a four-step framework of the flow for whom to do what in order to and by what means. So, right. you know, I, I, I can't have you go through all 28 steps of this. And I know you don't have the time for that, but walk me through that. What is the difference from that five-step process to the 28-step process? And how are people actually getting people, as you said, prospects to say, you know what? You got me. You figured me out. I want to have a conversation with you. How's that happening? Well, the first thing that predictable revenue didn't talk about was this concept of prospect personas. And so that was a really big portion of the hierarchy that everything feeds from in terms of writing compelling content. So I made sure that we put that in the book because prospect personas are not the marketing personas. That's another new type of, uh, I think, framework for predictable prospecting. Our call to action for prospect personas is to either get the first meeting or start that conversation. Prospect personas are just for sales. The personas that we get from marketing, if we're in a large company, 
their whole thing is to get someone to raise a fingernail or raise a hand, you know, not even, they may not even be the right person. Prospect personas are the right people. We're targeting them. We're niching them down. We're segmenting them down. We're only talking to those people who have a high probability of closing with us, meaning getting us in the door or have a high revenue potential. So that was missing from predictable revenue. I made sure that was in predictable prospecting. Then I added where people were getting stuck in the framework, which is that first conversation to the meeting. And we added a ton of blocks that allow people to really think through why change, why now, and why us from a prospect's point of view. So it's not really the buyer journey. It's more of what is going to delightfully jolt and disrupt this person to say, my gosh, these people really get me and I should spend my five to 10 minutes talking with them because they're hitting me in all these places. I had a client actually call me one day and said, Mary Lou, have you talked to this XYZ vendor and told him about our problem? And I said, what happened? He said, I got this email and he, in the first sentence, he just hit it between the eyes for me as to what our problems were. That is an example of an email that we are trying to strive for in predictable prospecting. So we went through in that book how to assemble, how to activate, and then how to optimize a lead generation 2.0 framework so that you can meet your results consistently. And if you want, you can scale. Predictable revenue really talked about the assembly and a little bit about the activation, but really didn't talk at all about optimization. And the optimization is all about the lean methodology of designing it, measuring it, improving it, testing it, and then keeping that final result as the control for the next round of iteration that you're going to do. I'm saying this totally in jest, so I hope that comes through. But when I hear you say that, Mary Lou, it's like, well, look, if I've got 10 SDRs and they've got this awesome automated sales uh, email engine, I, I, I can't do that at scale. I've got too many of these just to get through. I got to blast them out. I don't have time for that research stuff. What do you What do you say to that? <gasps> no, don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> I would say you're not doing your segmentation homework. You really need to, to get down to a manageable number of records. And if you're worried about, I want it like CEOs. They want it now. They want everything and everyone. Fine. What we're going to do is we're going to set three tiers of accounts. Tier three is the everybody that you want to love and touch. We'll put those in a nice nurture campaign that doesn't have a really, it has more of a soft call to action, not a direct call to action. And anybody that bubbles up to the top, great. The next level in is extended universe accounts, meaning they could be our core accounts, but they're a little bit less desirable to work and spend our resources on. So we'll do some customization there, but the database is going to drive the customization or personalization. And then in that bullseye are those 20 to 40 accounts per rep that have high revenue potential, high likelihood of closing, and that you would love to have as clients. If you work it that way, then you can leverage the entire database, but don't bombard everybody with every single record. It's just not going to work. When you start from scratch with a client, how long does this process take? When, when they say, you know, I, I'm going to adopt this, I want to do it, we're going to move away from what we're currently doing. How long does the actual process take to get them up and running? If they're a good student <laughs> as a client. It's <laughs> a fair qualifier. <laughs> then I can get the activation or the assembly done in four weeks. 
Uh, in my contracts, I give four to six weeks. I give them two weeks of sort of, oh my gosh, I didn't realize what we signed up for. So I give them a little leeway in there. And then the activation piece is four weeks and the optimization piece is four weeks. So it's a three month project. If we can, you know, if they're, like I said, they're a good client, they have the right working parts, they're not multitasking, they're not multiple hats, then that's what we can do. And then I sometimes do six-month contracts for those people who want me to be involved in the content assets, you know, actually writing the content, writing the emails, and I'll do that as well. But those, I only have a couple of those every quarter that I work on. I just think it's really important for the people listening to hear what you just said. Because again, I go back to, you know, CEOs, they want this stuff today, now, right now. And and it's just not possible. Because, you know, if, if I've got a 90-day sales cycle, meaning once they're an opportunity, it takes 90 days, well... I, I can't go from zero to close in 30 days. Like that's not possible. They're, they're cold contacts that I have to warm up, get the opportunity. And then I still have my same 90 day sales cycle. Maybe I can, I can increase it a little bit. But so, you know, you've done this for, like you said, 20, 30 years now, uh, Mary Lou. What's the most common thing you've seen people screw up in, in this process? It's hopeful. They're too hopeful as to what they have in place into where they can get to with the amount of people they have. So because I'm an engineer, because I'm an analytic and I study predictive analytics, I put my people through a descriptive assessment, which is like state of the art, state of the world, where we are now. Then we looked predictively as where we want to go. But then we have that third piece of the leg, which is prescriptively, what can we do based on where, who we have on staff, what we've got done in terms of content assets. I force my clients to look at past accounts in those three tiers we talked about and walk me through the value grid of how they got that client from first conversation to close. And those aha moments come through all of that. So they know by the time we go through that little assessment, the success path of getting them from where they are now to where they want to be and the milestones along the way. And it never maps to anything less than those that three-month schedule. Sure, sure. Is there, um, I don't want to say this, you uh just say it yeah i sorry uh <laughs> is there is there an average deal size where this works great for right or, or is there stuff that's too small or stuff that's too big where can this work for anybody no no okay. and you know predictable revenue had the number and i'm going to probably screw it up i think it was 10,000 so a $10,000 sale for a year kind of thing that you know, nine hundred a month or whatever, a thousand a month revenue. It has to be that. It can't be ninety nine dollars. If you're ninety nine dollars, work on the other channels that will lend will give you the results, mostly inbound and self selecting. But outreach, you know, you really need to work those numbers backwards as to how much it costs to get that sale in the door. So I think the number was 10,000 in predictable revenue and I still stick by that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, again, you have been doing this for a while. I can't imagine everything has been a wild success. Tell me, take me to a time where, you know, things just didn't go your way and, and you failed. Oh my gosh, there's so many. <laughs> but the good news is about failing is that you're failing forward. I totally believe that. Uh, but we did take on a $99 client. And I knew at the beginning that it was going to be really hard to do. So we 
we took them on and it failed miserably. Why? Because we were spending too much resource in order to generate those sales. So what ended up being what they were hoping for was 80% outbound, 20% inbound flip-flopped and it was actually 20% outbound, 80% inbound. So the, the framework that we built really couldn't be utilized until they made that decision to go up market. They had to go from a $99 sale to more of an enterprise-based sale before our process really worked well for them. Yeah, but they were, the good news about that, though, they were able to take the content assets and put them into those nurture sequences I was talking about for the rest of the universe. Mm-hmm. So that when things did bubble up, they had people to work, but we had to move all the SDRs to inbound. Yeah, that, that uh, makes sense. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Mary Lou, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. And sales tuners, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Sales tuners, Octave has built a sales productivity platform that streamlines the workflow for creating and managing your sales documents. Everything from presentations and quotes to all of your proposals and contracts. They can pull data from your CRM, CPQ, and ERP systems, saving you time and accelerating each sales opportunity. Octave has been around since 2010 and now serves more than 400 organizations. I'm talking global enterprises, guys, like GE and Siemens, national brands like Angie's List and FedEx Office, and even industry innovators like Double Dutch and Lindemood Bell. You've got to check them out. Go to Octave.com. That's O-C-T-I-V.com to learn more. And hey, during your demo, be sure to tell them you heard about them on the Sales Tuners podcast. We're back and it's time for the money round. Mary Lou, are you ready for the money round? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Sales, just process, the the knowledge of process and the comfort of process. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell your 22-year-old self to spend the next 30 days doing? Reading, studying, learning from people who have gone before you. Don't try to invent from scratch. It's very important. Uh, Which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose? Uh, I think it would be I love to win. I think it's more of that's more of a positive thing for me. And I really want to strive to be the best that I can be in any any modality that I tackle. I like it. What's a, a book, Mary Lou, that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Well, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, I read every year. And I think that's a great book for our initial conversations. Uh, That book has been bubbling up more and more recently. But uh, sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Mary Lou's suggestion of How to Win Friends and Influence People uh, for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. Mary Lou, what's something that you believe that nearly no one agrees with you on? This concept of engagement, I think that the numbers for online training, for teaching are way too low and that we need to work harder to get people to become successful and confident in their craft by us teaching them how to get there, but having that success rate be higher than what the numbers are showing. I like that. What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Make sure that you start embracing the concept of habit. Habit trumps inspiration and discipline any day. Mary Lou, how could someone find you or connect with you today after the show if they wanted to? 
You can reach me on LinkedIn, Mary Lou Tyler. You can reach me on my website, MaryLouTyler.com. And for those of you who have read the book, there's MaryLouTyler.com slash swag, S-W-A-G, that has a lot of additional information, teachings, worksheets, cheat sheets that I've put out there for readers. Mary Lou, this has been amazing, just like I thought it would be. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your time. I loved it. It was such a thrill for me to get to talk with Mary Lou today. I seriously give a lot of credit to her for her first book, Predictable Revenue, for some of my early success and really paving the way for a lot of the things that I do today. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, know when to walk away. Most of us are eternally hopeful, but it's often more prudent to be realistic. If you have a strong pipeline, work it. Don't be afraid to push back, but also recognize when something isn't working. If it's not a good fit, the square peg will never fit in the round hole. Have a set list or a set of criteria that you look for in your initial meetings. And if a client doesn't fit them, move on. While everybody may be a prospect, not everyone is a good prospect. Recognizing this early is a difference that can make all the world. Number two, trade discipline for habit. Think of prospecting like you would brushing your teeth. It's different than being disciplined. It's a habit. It's something you do every day without even thinking. There's a good reason people lose weight, then gain it, and then lose it again and again. They can have all the discipline in the world, but if working out and making healthy choices is not a habit for them, the discipline is for not. Incorporate prospecting into your daily routine prevents the peaks and valleys. The habit becomes so ingrained into your mind that it would feel weird if you missed it. And number three, become a student of the game. Talking to the right people at the right time in the right role at the right stage of the pipeline, well, that's the magical formula for success. But how do the stars align so beautifully to facilitate such perfection? The key here is studying your process and knowing your numbers. As each sales cycle unfolds, what patterns can you identify? Are there common stalls or objections? Finding repeatable solutions can put you at the top of the leaderboard in no time. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, I'll be talking to Kai Schoen, Chief Revenue Officer for a platinum Salesforce partner called Silverline. We talked about everything from raising jellyfish in the office to working with other companies to help open doors to their clients. You'll definitely want to hear his creative approach. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask our guests, please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. Be sure to sign up for our email list where we send out expanded content and previews of upcoming guests. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay